Good afternoon, listeners. Uh, today, I am joined by Andrew Koval, who is global co-head of LeFin and EMEA, uh, head of global credit finance at State Street. Uh, so hello, Andrew. How are you doing today? I'm well today. It's a, it's a lovely day in London. So yes, doing very well. So I think to start, it'd be great to, to get to know you uh, a little bit. So for those that are kind of unfamiliar with leverage finance and State Street, uh, could you explain briefly what this is and what your role entails uh, on a day-to-day basis? I'm sure that as kind of global co-head, there is no typical day, but um, it'd be great if you could kind of briefly run us through that. Yes, no problems. Um, so leveraged loans effectively involves debt that is um, rated sub-investment grade, so below investment grade level, which is effectively double B plus or BA1. Um, and basically it involves uh, issuers who are rated that by virtue of their leverage. So for instance, the ECB defines a leverage transaction of anything um, that has a, a leverage multiple of above four times. Um, you know, that's not a hard and fast rule, but that's just an example. With investment grade companies, you tend to see leverage of sort of three times and below. So anything above three to four, four times is considered leverage. The other thing that makes it usually a leverage transaction, particularly in Europe, is where the borrower is owned by one or more financial sponsors. So in Europe, especially these companies are owned by private equity firms. Um, there are leveraged loan transactions that are also corporate based, but they traditionally in Europe have financial sponsors. In the US, you probably see it around the other way. So you probably see more corporate borrowers that are levered, um, a lot more listed public companies where in, in Europe, it's more of a private market. So whilst you may be familiar with some of the leveraged loan transactions you see out there, um, a lot of them are private companies that have you know, private debt facilities. Mm-hmm. Now, my role within um, leverage finance at State Street, um, you know, I, I, as you said, I'm, I'm the global co-head of leverage loans. So my counterpart in the US um, also is, is the co-head of Le- leverage loans globally. But I also am effectively the head of lending in EMEA. So I oversee a number of other products uh, in EMEA, which also includes things like CLOs and fund finance, which is you know, other forms of debt. Um, which are sort of in, in some ways parallels to leveraged loans, but, you know, makes my job quite diverse. Um, but however, my, my career has been traditionally around leveraged loans since I've come to London. So my normal day would be as a leveraged loan person, I would um, talk to the market day today. So we, we are a, a buyer of syndicated loan facilities within Europe. And so I, I would deal with our um, the counterparties, which include the investment banks as our sales side, um, you know, I, I participate in client meetings. Internally, I participate in senior management meetings within the bank as part of you know, governance structures and, and the like. And what I really do enjoy about the role is um, with leveraged loans, you really you come in every day and you look at a different type of business. So there's some of them might be household names in the market. You've probably seen in the press recently like Asda, you know, Birdseye with, you know, the fish fingers we all no one loving our children, no one love are well known, mm-hmm. but there's also companies you may never have heard of and but, but companies where you use their components every day. So it's a company that might make the white in Oreos, you know, the, the microchips in your phone or the windscreen on your car. So you get to understand a lot of the market um, uh, companies through the market in the sense that you understand how different industries work, um, you know, what, what the competitive landscape and industries are and, and that make that keeps the job very interesting and that's a piece I would like that... that that motivates me and um, keeps me interested in the role, definitely. And so uh, now getting more onto the, the leverage finance side of things, um, you've been at, at State Street for uh, almost five years, a little over uh, four years now. Uh, do you have a favorite deal that you've worked on? Um, 
Yeah, so in terms of the, I mean, I would have to say the more interesting deals that I've worked on uh, in terms, would, would have probably been prior to State Street, in, mainly because it was during the crisis. I always feel like you you work on deals during a crisis, you learn so much more. So, I mean, I, when you sort of ask that question, I feel like um, there's two that come to mind, I would say, um, mainly because you learn more in a crisis when a company goes under stress. So there was a, there's a French retailer years ago, um, it's still still around called Vivate, which went through um, major restructuring throughout the last crisis. In it, um, effectively, was at post the crisis over 2011, 12. Um, you know, it was a significant restructuring in France. It was a large employer of something like 22, 23,000 people, um, ran into some troubles alongside the rest of the retail market at the time. Um, and, and it effectively was in a position where its business model was broken to a point it couldn't, um, in the sense that it couldn't handle the debt that was raised a number of years before, it was about two and a half billion euros. Um, and, and to go through a restructuring um, just, you know, of, of that size with, you know, that significance in, in France, considering it's, um, you know, the, going through a restructuring in France, I've never done that before on that scale, you know, going through the mandatory process was just really eye-opening and, also, the way it played out between the, the different participants in the deal, that, that being your know, management, being the mandatory, you know, the banks, the par lenders, the hedge funds, very, very interesting. Um, you know, people, other people who are in that deal probably would say they hate the deal and, you know, created a lot of stress that dragged out a long, long time and people, you know, debt, debt holders lost a lot of money, but it, it really, there are some lessons to be learned in terms of how, what happens as these situations play out and it's sort of, you know, when you're looking at deals in the future, it makes you think of um, you know some of the risks that, that potentially could crop up and even some of the warning signs in that business I think um, you know they were there but in it's easy to see in hindsight yeah that's super interesting to hear of course about you know how actually you know underwriting transactions during a crisis actually brings <laughs> I guess the most learning um, I guess now to to go more on on current uh, events one of the perks of being in in a uh, master's of finance at LSE is that you get to to hear some uh, pretty exclusive speakers. So we had uh, Kurt Bjorklund from, from Premiera on, and um, he said that as competition in private equity increases in Europe, uh, some players uh, in private equity are moving earlier and earlier in the business life cycle of firms. So do you feel like private equity kind of moving earlier uh, in kind of the, the business life cycle has affected the covenants on debt in any way or uh, the required yields um, since I would assume that kind of underwriting debt for a company that's, I guess, less mature is, is a lot riskier. Um, so has that changed at all? I, I would say um, in some ways, it, it, yeah, yes. But I mean, I mean, leverage loans, if you look at a traditional sort of life cycle, I mean, leverage loans or leverage lending isn't, I would say, traditionally involved in the launch or startup phases, which is, you know, predominantly VC funds and the like. Um, but I, I would say private equity firms are probably increasingly looking potentially at the growth phases. They're more established growth. So what I'm seeing is you can see you see businesses come to market where you know private equity firms will take over a business probably in, in the earlier stage of that growth phase and, and look to do both good, strong organic growth but also bolt-ons. It's not uncommon to for you know private equity firms to come to market then add debt facility. When, when I say bolt-ons, I'll make acquisitions on the side. You know maybe not as large as the initial investment, but just grow in different markets. And I think you know potentially um, that that is slightly true in the sense they're coming in slightly earlier in the, in the business life cycle. So you, you see much more impressive growth from some of these firms, but done in a, a more measured sense. 
I mean, I don't think leverage loans will ever move much away from being a traditional sort of mature industries investment, but these are what I'd say companies involved in a more mature growth phase where the, the real risk is behind it, but there is definitely, definitely more upside. I mean, <laughs> in private equity firms have to, you know, serve their investors, you know, they, they, they have certain returns and I think, you know, the better returns are out of this sort of earlier growth phase. Um, but yeah, as I said, it's a measured approach, very, very sensible. It's not uncommon to have companies be in market and come back, you know, every year or two um, to do, you know, sizable add-ons. Some do more regular type add-ons. So I've seen businesses grow from, you know, very, very small days where their debt stack may be 300, 400 million. Um, within a few years, you're looking at two, three billion um, just because one organic growth has been very strong and also they've made some sensible acquisitions. And, um, you know, there's sponsors are very good at that. Um, you know, they're very sort of active in doing that. And they use their experience in certain industries to, you know, uh, grow businesses from um, sort of the mid-market to large market. And we're increasingly also seeing some what, what companies that would normally have sat in the middle, middle market come into the large cap space by just virtue of maybe acquisition. So I'd say that would be um, a bit more of a trend. I think obviously there's a lot of money in private equity um, you know, been raised over the years and it needs to find a sensible home. Obviously, it's not, I don't think the risk levels are necessarily increased by going slightly earlier in the growth phase, but, um, you know, it just allows, you know, the capital to work a little bit harder when you've got potentially um, an industry that is in consolidation, for instance, which needs, you know, companies to consolidate some of the smaller players and use scale to make the market more efficient. Um, but then again, you, you know, there's, there's the traditional sort of, I would sort of look at healthcare type names, um, which you know, leverage loans will lean on in terms of being in a fairly mature market. But um, when you do look at these um, companies in the, maybe they're still growing, that they are much more exciting. You know, there's, a, there's you know, technology companies that tend to grow much faster. You know, some services businesses grow very quickly. And it'd be interesting to see how the dynamic changes post COVID with, you know, the market has, I think, accelerated the shift to technology and, you know, there's going to be a bigger necessity to invest in technology, which, you know, could could actually increase the growth of certain industries more than uh, than we would have expected in the past. But equally, there will be decline in some industries possibly faster than we expected to, such as retail. Mm -hmm. And so uh, now maybe transitioning to, to some questions about kind of what happened um, you know, during the, the coronavirus crisis um, in, in leverage finance, of course, institutions use their balance sheets to underwrite debt transactions um, with the expectation that they will kind of subsequently sell to investors, guaranteeing a, a maximum coupon to the clients uh, for which they, they underwrite that debt. Um, if you're able to sell at a, at a lower coupon, you get paid a fee. And uh, if the market charges a higher rate, there's a chance that you have to subsidize this debt. Um, which is kind of the, the risk-taking portion of uh, leverage finance. Um, in mid-May, we saw kind of 150 billion of downgrades of investment-grade credits in Europe to fallen angel status and kind of a, a complete freezing of the left-in credit market. So could you kind of maybe describe how you manage your risk when such an event happened? Yeah, sure. It was a very interesting period over the last 12 months. It was funny because I was only telling my team around you know January last year December 2019 that um, you know junior member of the team saying you really need to go through a crisis um, to really learn of what goes wrong with these loans um, you know when you're riding in a very strong market as we saw sort of 2019 you don't really appreciate what's in the documents what happens to companies that sort of thing and I said oh, well you'll never see anything like the financial crisis in 08 09 again 
literally a month or two later, we were all sent home and, um, and the world closed. So um, it was just, uh, I think I jinxed in some ways, but it was, it was interesting because this came from, it literally came from nowhere. I mean, I think everyone knew back in 08, 09 that, you know, there was a lot of debt in the system. Um, you know, COVID came obviously from that field, not nothing anyone would have expected. So it was, it was quite challenging. I mean, in terms of the first part of the question, um, we don't underwrite the facilities alone. So we're an investor in the syndicated market. So we, we, have, we had a portfolio that we held um, and our portfolio in Europe is about two and a half billion. And I think when the world was shut down and, and sent back home and all you know, the, the world went into lockdown, I think the first thing other than shock was like, what do we do? I think what we, we first did across our portfolio is we focused on we went into the companies and we looked at liquidity um, because initially we thought this would be something that would last a few months, um, very short and sharp. And then people talked like talked about a really, really sharp V-shaped recovery. And, you know, different letters have been used over the last year to, to um, you know, describe the potential recovery. So it was very short and sharp. So we thought, okay, which let's look at liquidity. Let's make sure, um, you know, companies have sufficient liquidity for the next sort of maybe three to six months. Um, and those companies that, don't have strong liquidity, we probably need to, you know, question whether we invest in those or, you know, we sell them. And so um, we did a massive liquidity analysis across our book, which had about 75 odd names, 80 names, and stress tested them um, liquidity just to see what would happen if literally their revenues dried up or reduced materially and, and whether they could survive sort of six months and into 12 months. And we came up with a, I guess, a period, a, a sort of a, not quite a traffic light system, but companies that were had uh, liquidity concerns within six months versus 12 months versus two years and sort of ranked them in that way. And so the way we had to manage the portfolio, managing the risk was, um, you know, we, we made a decision to, we were lucky because we had built a very defensive portfolio. So the portfolio we built at State Street for leveraged loans, we focused more on the defensive industries and um, we built a portfolio that wasn't quite COVID proof, but it was close. And then we, but we did have a little bit of exposure to you know, sort of leisure um, and those were the companies that we felt like we didn't didn't have enough, as much liquidity as we would have liked. Um, so out of our sort of 70, 80 odd names, um, there's sort of five to 10, which we put on more of a watch list with, you know, maybe five of those being more closely watched. There was a lot of companies within there that COVID probably wasn't going to impact as much. So we didn't focus on them as much for now. And so then we really focused our time and effort on the companies we felt were not going to have strong liquidity. And we continued to do more work um, and um, eventually we actually had to, we decided to exit a couple of those names, um, which we felt like were, because we felt like the loss potential downside in these companies was, um, or the, the loss potential loss was going to be more than where the, the loan was marked at. So in the, in the background, while, um, you know, we're making these decisions, obviously the loan market traded down, you know, tr a traditional par market traded down to sort of 80 and below, I think it dropped, um, you know, 23rd of March, just a, anniversary was about a week ago was the bottom of the market I think you know the index went down something like 75 and so we um we didn't sell obviously at that point but over the few next few months we decided to trim positions in some of those more sensitive sectors and rebalance the portfolio into um you know more more stable businesses that weren't going to be impacted by liquidity as much from a total shutdown so that that was that was the way we, we effectively managed the book um and we, we came out okay on the other side because um what happens in times of crisis, you have very strong companies also trade down in terms of their price. So you can easily switch from maybe a company that is under under true distress potentially into a company that's just been sold down because the whole market's been sold off. So you can actually switch between, say, a single B name and a double B name just through technical. So 
you're able to rebound the portfolio in that sense. Um, and, you know, since then the market has recovered and, you know, market is effectively back up to par, but there's still obviously a lot of businesses out there that will have to deal with, um, you know, a lot of debt. I think the good thing about what happened in this crisis, which wasn't um, around in the Lehman crisis, was um, there was a lot of liquidity available. And what I would say is um, companies that were under stress were able to go to the capital markets by either raising loans, higher bonds, or even um, shares. And they raised money um, to buy themselves time for liquidity. So, yes, they increased their leverage. Um, you know, they may have raised equity at a, maybe an unattractive price, but um, it bought them a lot of time. So, you know, there was investors out there that were willing to support these businesses through their tough times. So that helped a lot too. So, so for the companies that might have had six months liquidity, they all of a sudden had 18 months or, you know, up to two years. They really sort of, um, particularly when you look at the businesses, a lot of business models and leverage loans just aren't broken. Um, I think in the last crisis it was. I mean, I, I use retail as an example. A lot of retailers are struggling, but, um, you know, there's a lot of companies where you knew the business model wasn't really broken, that eventually it would bounce back, but obviously a different company than what it was today. And so um, in the main, we hold on to almost all of our book um, and, and we were right in doing that because a lot of those names have now recovered in, you know, performance throughout the last, you know, few few sort of months or a few quarters has been very good and probably above expectation. So it was a, it was a lot of, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a lot of quick decision-making and, um, you know, getting under the, under the skin of each company in terms of its liquidity and making, making decisions on how best um, the portfolio should look um, as we went through COVID. Mm-hmm. And so uh, unfortunately we're running out of time a little bit, but uh, as a final question, I like to ask, if you had any career advice to give uh, the students at the LSE, what would it be? Um, I would say, I'd say obviously work work very hard to start with. I mean, when I was at the start of my career, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, you know, I sort of fell into the area I did. Um, but I think once you're in in the market that, that most interests you, I think you know, I'd say one work hard too. Just retain you know networks that you you build through through your work. Um, I mean, you've probably heard it from many people, but, you know, your next job comes more through your network than a headhunter in, in some cases, you know, get out there and get to know the market, you know, other people who do similar job to you network with them because you learn from them in terms of conversations about the market in terms of what's going on. Um, and then just take a real interest in the role and, um, you know, just especially early in your career, take every opportunity to work hard. I mean, I know it's can, uh, you yeah, the hours are long for certain people and you know when they first come into finance but you do learn very quickly and I encourage people to sort of take that as a a piece of advice but also continue to build your network over a period of time Um, and just um, you know if if you're not working in an area that particularly interests you you know like I was fortunate enough when I worked started I worked in a bank and um, I didn't particularly like the initial area I worked in but I looked at another area and was able to move across and um, you need to do a role that you're interested in, I think, and then that, that shows real career progression um, where you can see, you know, in the future that that role is going to have a, a reason to be there, where you can grow within the role. Um, I think it's really important to have a good mentor um, if you can along the, on, along the way, if you can be fortunate enough early in your career to get a mentor, uh, like a senior person who can help you. And I think that's been one of the things I liked about working at State Street is because, you know, I've, I've got some very good bosses across the, the um the bank who have been um, good sounding boards. I, I, I'm at a point where I've been in the market. I've been working for well over 20 years now. 
um, but you never stop learning. So, you know, I'm always learning off people who've been in the market longer than me. So take the opportunity to learn definitely off, um, you know, those more senior than you. Because um, even when in the first crisis, I remember in the Lehman crisis, so folks, my, my bosses have been in the market 20 years and, you know, they, they'd never seen anything like that. So you never, you never sort of stop learning and, and take the opportunity to find someone who can mentor you, find someone who can learn from and also build networks among your peers as well. Um, because I think that's where, you know, that's where your career ends up being. You know, if you get well-known in the market, that's who you learn from. That's who you, you may work for in the future and um, just could keep learning, reach out to learn. That doesn't need, need to be formal study. That could be, you know, informal study, just um, sitting down with people. Don't be afraid to ask for someone's time just for a, a coffee or a chat, just for some advice. If you see that person as being someone who you either aspire to or, you know, that can give you some very good career advice. But so... I know that's a bit of a long-winded answer, but there's some of the things that I would um, I would take away. Right. Once again, uh, thank you so much for for joining. I'm sure the the LSE students will really love this episode. It was extremely interesting to hear about leverage finance uh, and and to get to know you a little bit. So thank you so much. No, thank you very much for your time. It's been um, very interesting and um, some very very good questions in there, which has made me um, think and open up about the market I worked in and. Um, and my career to date. So um, thank you very much.